Thanks, you can be seated. If you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, last week I introduced the church to a new game. I don't know if you're here or not. It's called Worth It, Not Worth It. So we're going to play again today. Everyone want to play? You ready to vote whether something's worth it or not worth it? So some of you, like me, you love surfing. How, anybody, any surfers here? You love surfing? Okay. Yeah, so you guys get automatic into heaven. I just want to point that out. And, um, but if many of us here love surfing, but just plug in you, the thing that you love. Do you love it so much that you're willing to do it with these? Actually, I think that's a dolphin. I thought of that later. But just pretend it's a shark, okay? How many of you say it would be worth it to surf anyway in the midst of a shark? Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but let's just continue with that theme, okay? Let's, let's talk about, like, if you really love surfing, but you happen to live in the Midwest, and the only place you can surf is in the Great Lakes. There's actually surfing that goes on in the Great Lakes. They call it unsalted. I love that. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, though, uh, the best waves in the Great Lakes happen in the winter. So is it worth it or not worth it to surf in the Great Lakes in the winter? You tell me. <laughs> worth it or not worth it? Who says it's worth it? Okay, I think it's totally worth it. Sharks, maybe no, but uh, I'll freeze. I've been cold before, no problem. Okay, so let me ask, some of you, like, you need a thrill in your life. Maybe you're turning 50, and you've got to convince yourself, hey, I still got it. I can still challenge life, and you're ready for some type of, like, big thrill in your life. Is it worth it, then, to be one of the 20, to take the risk to be one of the 21 in 3 million that attempt this, that actually die doing it? How many of you think it? Is it worth it or not worth it? Raise your hand. Worth it? Not worth it. Okay. What I wondered in the first service that came out, I'll repeat it here, it's like, what if one of the 21 that died this year was going to be in church today and they couldn't even vote? That's fireman humor, I'm just saying. Okay. So is it worth it um, for you to travel 7,900 miles to Kathmandu to take a four-hour third-world bus ride uh, only to climb an 800-foot climb on a goat trail mid-slope on a mountain where you could die uh, in order to do this? How many of you say it's worth it? How many say not worth it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a 650-foot drop that I don't know if you recognize this man, but that is Stu Stewart, the mayor pro tem in Temecula, and uh, even greater accolade, he goes to Sunridge. So here for Stu. Okay, uh, last one. Um, how many of you... I uh, think it would be worth to spend 23,000 hours of your life practicing the violin so that you could do this. How many of you think it's worth it? 
How many things? Not worth it. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed or not, but that's Mojo, our high school pastor in high school, with a different hairstyle. And uh, I personally think it was totally worth it for him to go through all that practice so that he can play his violin in our Christmas Eve services, if nothing else. So, um, so if you're just joining us uh, for this series, we started a, a, ta- a collection of talks we're calling So Worth It. And uh, the idea here is there are things in life that are, like, may make us uncomfortable, they'll be challenging, there might be risk, it might cost something, and, and there's, there, there are Christian versions of that too. There are things that, as a Christian, Jesus calls us to that, if we're honest, it's like we're not too keen about. But in the end, it is so worth it. Um, and I think that's... What Jesus was talking about when he said, uh, when Mark records him saying in Mark 10, 28, Mark my words, no one who sacrifices because of me and the gospel will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times. These are, there are things that God calls us to that are challenging to us, but they're so worth it. Last week we talked about so worth being intentional with money. We said, you know, for most of us, even talking about money, especially in church, it makes us uncomfortable. There's a rearranging of our priorities in life in order to do it, but we talked about, you know, living by a give, save, live, and, and determining the percentage that we want to live off of, being intentionally wise with our money. And we talked about the value of money, uh, turning our resources into stories, lasting stories. And we said, you know, it's worth it to be intentional in that way to have stories in your family, to have stories in your church, and have stories worldwide, even with people that you don't know. And by the way, you have to ask yourself, is it so worth it for you? Some of you are so faithful in your giving, and we just baptized a bunch of students. It's totally worth it. And if you, if you give regularly in your tithes and offerings here, this is what it goes to. It goes to ministry that changes lives. And you know that next Sunday, I've been talking about how it's Get It Done Sunday. How how about the hallway, those of you who come in later? It looks a lot better, huh? We're not even close. There's more to come. And I'm so thrilled to see that box start to get checked off. We've been working on it so long. We're redoing the carpet and painting in all of our downstairs classrooms and hallway and redesign of the hallway. And I mentioned before, but we have a unique opportunity in that the carpet contractor we're working with is selling us the carpet that we have at his cost. It's that company's cost. So we have a unique opportunity to carpet and paint the rest of this building, which includes the worship center and then all the upstairs hallways and classrooms. And that'll be $130,000. So if you have $130,000, you know what you can do with it next Sunday. You can help us get it done. But uh, most of us, it's just like ordinary folks giving. And so we've asked you to pray. We've been asking you to pray for the last few months, or, or the last month, about what God might be calling you to do to help us get it done. And uh, this week, I'll send you an email where we'll talk about how, you know, the procedure that you can follow to help us get there, to get it done. And I hope that you've been praying about that. So, um, and... It might be totally worth it. Last week we talked about being intentional with money. Today I want to talk about this uncomfortable topic. It's worth the risk to tell someone the good news. It's so worth it. 
to take the risk to tell somebody the good news. Thank you for the amen back there. Some of you, like, you're like, oh, this is my favorite message, you know, because you're an extrovert or a missionary, you know, like, so that's easy. But most of us, when we talk about telling someone the good news, your palms are sweating, your heartbeat's going up, you're wishing that you didn't come to church today, it wasn't so worth it after all, it makes you super uncomfortable. That's for the extroverts, but not for you. And, you know, even as a pastor, I have, um, even, that, that sounds ridiculous, it sounds so prideful. I'm just a person, too, and I have many fails in this area. But before we talk about, like, why it might have been so worth it and how it was so worth it uh, for the early Christians, let's talk honestly about why this is even one of the topics we're talking about, about why some of us, like, it makes our heart race to think about telling, someone the good, telling somebody the good news. Because often we don't tell the good news because we fear pushback. We fear pushback. Isn't that the truth? I mean, there's not, you can't exactly call it persecution in this country right now, but there is a cost. Because in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime, times have changed. See, back in the day, you talked about church like you did sports or anything else. It just came out. Everybody went to church, even if they were faking it. And the first time I went to church, I've, I've told a story before. They made me fill out a visitor card, you know, like tell us about yourself, name, address, um, you know, and what church you go to. And I thought, man, you know, like, I can't go somewhere and say that I don't go to church. So I lied on the card. I put down St. Timothy Lutheran's church. That's where I go to church because that's the only church I knew its name because it was in my neighborhood and behind it was a big field and I used to smoke dope there. And that's how I knew about that church's name and that's how I got on that card. Religion of any kind in those days was mainly seen as good for society. But now to be devout of any brand, it's, like it's, it's seen as bad for society, especially Christians. Christians uh, have been characterized as being uh, exclusive and narrow-minded. If even a discussion about what it's like to live as a Christian, especially when it comes to morality, that can be seen as oppressive and judgmental. And so there's a social cost telling somebody the good news of Jesus Christ. So we don't talk about it. And that's not new. Believe it or not, you know, we have this idea that the early Christians, uh, it was different for them, but it really wasn't. It's very, there are a lot of similarities between our day in the day of Jesus and the early Christians. And I'm, I'm indebted to Dr. Timothy Keller on this note because I, I heard him do a talk on this, and he compared the Roman culture of that day to American culture. And there's a lot of similarities, but they spring from a, a significant difference. We live in a secular culture. We're trying to reject God completely, but they lived in a polytheistic culture because they had many gods. Everyone had their own god. If you were a person, you had a God. If you were in the marketplace, your business had a God. Your home had a God. Your city had a God. But Christians felt that their God was the exclusive God. And that became a problem. See, if you went to a town and you entered the city walls, you would stop and, and give observance to uh, that city's God. If you entered a household or a business, you would, you would stop and again 
out of uh, civility or courtesy, you would give an, uh, a tip of your hat to that God. And there was like this whole background thing. If you don't do that, that God will curse you. And then along come Christians who said that their God is the God. He's the only God. And it really got difficult when the Christians, in their belief that there's only one God, uh, they would not bow to the other gods, particularly when it came to Caesar. So you have a pluralistic society where everybody you know, has their own God and kind of like it's just everybody get along, and you can see how Christians wouldn't fit in that had this stance. And it wasn't a huge problem at first because much like the Jews, the Jews had one God. They believed in only one God. And yet they were more isolated. They were a people group. And so it never really became a problem because they kind of kept their faith to themselves. And, and, and honestly, many Christians are emulating that same model. It's uncomfortable for me to talk about it myself, and I make others uncomfortable, so I'll just keep it kind of under wraps. But Christianity at that day, it started to cross lines. And what typically kept a religion contained, Christianity crossed racial divides and religious divides and uh, cultural divides, and they kept popping up everywhere, and that was upsetting to the culture. And they heard things like, well, why are you being so difficult? Why do you have to be different? You, you think you're better. Can't you just fit in? How can you be so narrow-minded as to not accept our gods? And eventually it turned into, these Christians are a threat to society. We have to do something about them. Does that sound vaguely familiar? It should. And you know what happened. You know the story. That, it started with a discomfort, but eventually there was a backlash of hostility toward Christians at this time. And the, the book that follows in your New Testament, the Gospels, called Acts, records the early actions of the early Christians. And serious pushback is happening by chapter 4, even. And you have Peter and John who have been preaching the Gospel, telling people the good news, and it's making other culture groups uncomfortable and so they're called in and warned in Acts 4.16 says what should we do with these men they asked each other we can't deny that they've done a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it perhaps we can stop them from spreading their propaganda we'll warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus name again so they called the apostles back in and told them never to speak or teach about Jesus and in verse 21, it says, after further threats, they let him go. I don't know what you could add to that, but they did. And you know, there's an indication here that even Peter and John, they're, they're afraid. This, this is upsetting to them because they go back to their community of faith. And they tell them what happened, and they pray together. And they ask for the Holy Spirit to empower them in spite of their fear. And then they go out and start talking about Jesus again. And then they get arrested in chapter 5, verse 40, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged, which is beaten. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Did it stop them? Nope. You know what happened. You, you're sitting here today because they did not stop talking about it. 
They did not stop talking about Jesus. By A.D. 100, scholars estimate that there were about 25,000 followers of the way. And by Constantine's time, uh, 300 plus, there are maybe up to 20 million Christians. And today, there are billions. And the question you have to ask about that is, how did Christianity grow in spite of all of that resistance? It was at best tolerated, but it was illegal. And remember, they didn't have buildings. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have student ministry or children's ministry. They didn't have nice new carpet in their hallways. Why did early Christians share the gospel in spite of the risk? That's the question I want to talk about today. And I, I want to point out two things. And then I, I want to give a couple of examples. And then I have a wrap-up just on some of the myths, I think, that are out there about sharing your faith, telling others the good news. So the first thing that I see, the reasons for why early Christians shared the gospel with people, even though it was a risk, is they were overcome by grace. They were overcome by grace. If you look at the apostles' teachings, there are two common things, themes that come up. One is the resurrection. Many of them were eyewitnesses, but they wrote about something else even more than that, and it was grace. I'm going to throw a few verses up here. Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace. Paul said that. In Romans 5.20, he said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul said, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 13, Set your hope fully on the grace given you. Historians tell us that Christianity offered something that no other religion or no, other, no government, no group, that it ever offered was the grace of God. And so the idea that you would be accepted by God, loved by God, regardless of your economic status or where, which side of the tracks you came up or the color of your skin or the, the experiences that you had, the idea that, or the choices that you made that God loves people enough to send his son was just mind-boggling. It was revolutionary. And then there were all the implications of that in terms of what now do people who have been overcome by the grace of God, how do they live? And they lived entirely different lives. See, I could give you a theological description of grace. I would love to point you to a series we did last Easter. If you have questions about what, it, what the grace of God means, it's called Grace Like Water should listen to that series in our archives. But really, to me, the grace is best described by, if you're a parent, how you feel about your kids. You see, you love your kids unconditionally. They can make mistakes. They can be rude and mean to you. <clears throat> um, <laughs> They can disappoint you. They can make bad choices. They can argue with you. 
but you love your kids. Now, let's just admit, and parents, we have our bad days, but I'm, I'm talking about our good days, right? There's nothing that that child couldn't do, could do to make you stop loving them. Some of you are sitting here right now, and your kids are in their 40s, their 50s even, and you're still worrying about them. That's how God feels about us. He's like the perfect parent. That's the grace of God. And that was, that was a new thing with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Because grace, they were overcome by grace because grace overcomes us. We're going to sing about that at the end of this service. But I hope that just that part of the talk like makes the words that we sing about the reckless love of God today mean so much more. If you came to church today and you're trying to understand Christian faith and, you know, the thing I'd want you to remember is that God loves you like the best parent. And I don't care what choices you made before you came in here. It doesn't matter what your experience have been, how far you feel from God, whatever has been done to you that makes you feel far from God, God loves you. That's the grace of God. And when that happens, when that overcomes you, Paul says that we become new. We're like a whole new person. And that leads, leads you to the second reason, I think, why early Christians shared their faith in spite of the risk. They were overcome by the grace of God, but then secondly, that grace caused them to be overwhelmed with joy. They were overcome by grace and overwhelmed with joy. In Acts 4.20, here's what uh, Peter and John said when they were told to stop teaching and talking about Jesus. We cannot stop telling about the wonderful things we have seen and heard. We can't stop. I heard Dr. E.V. Hill, uh, pastor of the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, at one time one of the largest black churches in the USA, and I loved uh, Dr. Hill's teachings. And I heard him teach on this passage. He, he passed away in 2003, and then his son pastored the church. But on this particular passage, I heard him teach, and he said the reason why John and Peter could not stop talking is they had to can't help it. They can't help it. You can tell us to stop talking about it, but we can't help it. And the reason was, I believe that they were just overwhelmed with joy. You see the same with Peter and Silas in Acts 16, 25, about midnight. Peter and Silas are in jail for having shared the gospel, and they are praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. See, when, when grace overcomes you, joy will overwhelm you. And you can't help it. See, your thoughts can be silenced by people, your philosophies and your opinions, but joy cannot be silenced. You can't keep a lid on it. When your heart is filled with joy because of the grace of God, you can't help but tell people the good news. You know, I, I've been a Christian since 1972, and I've, I've taken every class. I've taken courses on how to argue people into Christianity. I know how to answer the questions, you know, and, and I've often heard Christians say, I just don't know enough, you know, or whatever. It's like, that is not the issue in the end. 
the ultimate answer to whether or not I'm going to tell somebody the good news isn't, it doesn't come down to a strategy or a class, all things that are helpful, a course that you might take on how to do it. Those are all helpful. But I really think the secret is rediscovering this prayer of David in Psalm 51:12, when he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe we just need to get our joy back. Maybe we've forgotten the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Because when you get that, you'll be overcome by it. And if you're overcome by God's grace, you will be overwhelmed with joy. You know, the only equal to joy is bitterness. It can't be silenced either. And often, I've found in talking to Christians who no longer can tell somebody the good news, what's happened through bad teaching, experiences, just kind of getting callous. It's like we lose our joy and we become bitter Christians. And the testimony that we give is more generated by our anger and really bitterness. And I think we just need to get back to the joy. I think we need to go back and dwell on number one, the incredible grace of God. Don't think of God's grace as a, as a theological point. Think about it in terms of the miracle that it truly is. It's a miracle that you're a Christian, if you are. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian. Now, let me point out just a couple of examples uh, from your New Testament of people who are overwhelmed with joy because they were overcome by grace. First, we're going to look at some men, then we'll look at a woman. Um, some of the earliest followers of Jesus were searching for the Messiah, and in John 1.41, you have uh, uh, Andrew, when he discovers Jesus, he goes to find his brother Simon and he tells him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And then Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And, and um, Nathanael said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He was like, Mr. Negativity, come and see, said Philip. So here you have people that were searching all their life for the Messiah. And when they found him, cult, generations had been searching. And when they met Jesus, they were filled with joy. And they went out and told people. Then there's a woman, the woman that, uh, the Samaritan woman who was at the well, and Jesus talked to her. And she was stunned that he would. And Jesus talked about the water of life to her. And in John 4, 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and went back to the village and told everyone, come and meet a man who told me everything I did. Can this be the Messiah? So here's a, a woman that doesn't even follow um, Jewish religion. She's a Samaritan, and she encounters Jesus, and she's so overcome and overwhelmed that she leaves her water pot. She forgets entirely why she went there, and she rushes back and says, I think I might have found the Messiah. And the outcome uh, in uh, 
John 149 of the men, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel, and if you know your, your, your New Testament, you know that all these were some of the earliest followers of Jesus because a couple of ordinary guys told somebody else that they found Jesus. And then the woman in John 4.39 records that many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. So you have all these people coming to their own faith because of a simple testimony. And you have to remember, these, aren't, these guys aren't the Apostle Paul who could dialogue and, and uh, discuss philosophy and relate it to culture. The Apostle Pauls are great, and every generation we have them. But largely, Christianity has moved forward in history, and it still does, by the simple, ordinary people who have been overcome by his grace and overwhelmed with joy. And we just give a simple word of testimony of how God has changed us. I got the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to talk to somebody who was struggling in their life. It was a, it was a life issue, family conflict. And they were asking me, you know, about that, but then it, it led into a whole thing of like, well, I've always heard that like, like God loves you if you go to church and you're good. Is that what it is? And I got to share the gospel with them. And they said, I've never heard that. I've always just been told, go to church and do good. And the idea that God could love me when I did this and this and this, I can't believe it. And so, like, I... I said, look, I'm not going to pressure you over the phone to pray a prayer, but this would be a simple one to pray, of faith. And, uh, and then I talked to them about their personal issue that was going on. And uh, two days later, I called them and said, hey, did you ever pray that prayer? Yeah, I did. And I've been listening to this, and I started going to this church, and da-da-da, on it went. It's like, I didn't pull out any razzmatazz Bible college memory uh, super theological points. I didn't discuss the doctrine of the Amusio, sublapsarianism as compared to infralapsarianism in a Labrador retriever. I just said, this is what God did in my life. And this is what I think he could do in yours. A simple testimony. And in the end, this is how Christianity spread. And it's the same today. We're we're, we're called to give testimony about how God has changed us. And so don't get hung up on the intellectual argument. You know, don't, because if, if, if your goal is simply to win the intellectual discussion, you'll only prove that you're smarter than them, and you'll tie them up on null knots. But I haven't heard of many people that got argued intellectually into becoming a Christian. If you, if, you, if you try to convince them that you're, uh, that, that you're morally superior, it's like if you make it a moral argument, it's like, well, this is how it should be. It's like you're only proclaiming that you're better than them. If you make it about politics, if, you, if, you know, if, you, if you're always grinding on, you know, like this party or that party, pick, pick one. If that's your main goal, then really you're just aligning yourself with a worldly philosophy 
and saying, this one's better. If you, if you pick an economic plan and say, this is, this is Jesus' economic plan, if that's the most important thing to you, and by the way, I'm, I am kind of stepping on your toes, I know, but listen to me, Christian. We talk about all those things with great passion. We talk about morality today. We talk about our politics. We talk about our preferred economic plan. And we, talk, and we, and we argue intellectually about uh, Christian faith. And these are all great discussions to have, but let me ask you something. When's the last time you had a gospel discussion with somebody? When's the last time you fired that up on your social media? When's the last time you walked into your office uh, and just when someone came to you and you had a private conversation, you shared the gospel? Maybe the reason that we don't have those conversations is we've forgotten the grace of God. And we're no longer overwhelmed by his joy. I got one minute to go through different ways, different myths about sharing the gospel. So just buckle up, fill in your blanks, and I'll do the best I can here. Here here are some common myths about telling people the good news. Number one, I need a Christian culture in order to effectively share the gospel. Truth is, much of our Christian discussion today is about shaping the culture. And Jesus never called us to shape the culture. He called us to change human hearts to be a part of that process. Look at the context in which the early Christians were sharing their faith. It was not a Christian context. The light shines brightest in the dark. And oftentimes our defensiveness about the preferred culture, and I have a preferred culture as well, is more about our own comfort and safety rather than our desire to spread the gospel. Another one, another myth is I don't know enough. Simply, let me put it this way. The goal here isn't to show people what you know. The goal here is to allow people to know you better. Let them in and see you struggle and share with them how the gospel has made a difference in your life. So stop trying to be perfect. The grace of God will shine much more brightly through you in your brokenness. So quit waiting to be perfect before you share the gospel. Another myth is I can share the gospel while being isolated from those who need to hear it. There's no impact without contact. One of my uh, favorite authors wrote a book called Lifestyle Evangelism, Dr. Joe Aldrich, and, he, and he, he said that some Christians are rabbit hole Christians. We come up out of the burrow, we spit out the gospel, and then we rush back to the safety of our little burrow, our little hole in the ground. And that's not effective. In fact, it's interesting to me the number of Christians that have taken the writings of Jesus or the, or the sayings of Jesus or the teachings of the Apostle Paul and turned it into somehow being isolated from the world because both of them gave their lives to spreading the gospel. We cannot share the gospel if we're isolated from people who desperately need it. Another myth is it's all on me or all on God, one or the other. That's, neither one of those are accurate. Neither one is good theology. Some people say, well, it's all on God. You know, like, I'm a, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm sorry to offend you if you are. But, like, if you act like a Calvinist and you never, ever share your, the gospel with somebody because you think that's all on God, that's terrible theology, and it will never work. If, and then some of us take on all this guilt like it's all on me. It's, I have to wear the whole burden, and, like, I have to change them. No, you don't. That's God's part. You know, 
Paul talked about us being in partnership. We are co-workers with God. And some of us water, some of us plant, but God gives the increase. God has called us to work in partnership with him to share the gospel. It's not all on you. It's not all on God. And then the last myth is they won't listen. Somehow you've convinced yourself that, like, that you're able to categorize and read people's heart and so that whatever you would share with them, they're not in a place where they would listen. And really, the, the root of that, let's just be honest, that's self-righteousness and arrogance. And it's like, you don't know. In fact, what I've experienced is the people that are the loudest critics often are the ones that are struggling the most. And I could call out names if this wasn't you know, recorded and going to go out into cyberland, I could say names of people that I worked with in the fire department that they were my, my greatest enemy. The, they would ridicule me. Uh, they would leave notes. They'd make their little comments. And, you know, some of those people are Christians today. So you never know if they won't listen or if they will. I just have figured that it's a miracle I became a Christian, so I'm trusting that it could be a miracle for somebody else. So, wrapping up, the early church, early Christianity blew up in spite of all the resistance and risk that was involved because ordinary people like you and me thought it was so worth it. And so they told people the good news. Can you imagine what it will be like to walk through heaven's gate, if there's a gate, and see people that are there because you told them the good news? Or how about that person that's in your life right now and they need a change? And two years from now, three years from now, ten years from now, they have Christ in their heart and their lives are changed. Would that be worth it? Be so worth it. Let's pray.